if you would, go ahead and take your Bibles out with me. Let's open them up to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, chapter 5. Romans, chapter 5. And this morning we're looking at the last two verses. Verses 20 and 21. We're going to read together the paragraphs. We're going to begin in verse 18. Romans 5, beginning in verse 18. Here's what the Word of God says. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This morning we come to the end of our study. See if that helps. The end of our study of what is an incredibly important portion of Scripture. And last week we really came to the heart of what Paul wanted to say in these verses We looked at verses 18 and 19, and we saw glorious truth taught to us. We saw that these were a a continuation of the worshipful verses 1 through 11. 18 and 19 are sort of the mountain peak of what Paul wants to say in this chapter. And it was such a great message. Let me remind us what it was. So far, what Paul has been teaching us is this. Christians have peace with God through Jesus Christ. We have access into God's grace. We have joy unspeakable. This joy is joy in the midst of trials, joy in the midst of suffering, joy in the midst of broken hearts and lost jobs and cancer-ridden bodies. This is a joy that sustains Christians in prison and in poverty and in persecution. It is a joy that looks to the future and awaits with eager expectation the glory of God. That one day we will behold the fullness of the glory of God. One day we will share in the glory of God's holy character. This is the greatest gift in the world. We can't imagine anything better than this. And this gift is ours. And we know that that day is coming for us. How do we know that day is coming? And how do we know that things are going to turn out so well for us on the last day? I mean, there are billions of people on this planet right now who they're not sure how things are going to go for them on the last day. 
There are many who are not so sure they even believe in a last day. That history will come to some end. Many don't know if they believe in a holy judgment before a holy God. And of those that do believe that such a day is coming, many have anxiety about it. Many have scary feelings about what will happen to them on the last day. And yet, we're told by Paul that Christians have reason to live with incredible joy knowing that the day of judgment for them will be the day they enter paradise. Where do Christians get this kind of surety? We know what God has already done for us in the past. We know what He has already done, given His Son Jesus for us. That God has already loved us in the hardest and most unimaginable ways, and therefore we have no reason to doubt. He will keep His promises. He will deliver us safely through the day of judgment. And more than that, because that was verses 1-11, through we finally get to the heart of what Paul was saying in verses 18 and 19, and it's this. We know that we're going to be okay on the day of judgment because just as Adam's sin brought us death, Jesus' work, including the work of the cross, has brought us life and justification. This very moment, because of the cross, God is our friend. God is no longer our enemy. We are His children. We look back at the cross and we see what Jesus did there. We know what Jesus accomplished there. And because of that, we are right with God. We know that the righteousness given to us through Jesus will stand on the last day. And therefore, we do not fear the coming of Christ. We eagerly anticipate it. Our hope rests upon it. We are ready for the last day. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, the day in which we will behold His glory and dwell with Him forever. Our Savior's death has brought us life. His obedience has brought us righteousness with God. That's the point that Paul has been bringing home. He wants us to rejoice. He wants us to worship. But of course, this only applies to Christians. This only applies to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my question for you is this. Do these verses apply to you? Do you have peace with God? Do you have this confidence about the day of judgment? Now, as we come to the last two verses of the chapter, Paul wants us to see that God has done all of these incredible, wonderful things for a purpose. Remember, ultimately, everything that God does, He does for His own glory. God is not an idolater. God does not love people more than He loves Himself. He does not break the first commandment. God is the only being in the universe for whom loving Himself above all is righteous and good. He is holy, 
Holiness means loving all that is good with an infinite love. Well, God is all good, so God loves God with an infinite love. And therefore, everything that God does, everything that God does, He does to express His own glorious character. If God is just and righteous and wise and merciful and pure, is it not right that God should give expression to those things? Is it not a good thing for God to put on display for His own delight and for the delight of others the wonders of His own character? Everything that God does in human history is ultimately a part of His plan to put on display for His own delight and the delight of others the wonders of who He is. God Himself is Father, Son, and Spirit. And these three in one, Father, Son, Spirit, delight in what they are doing together in history. God has also created angels, elect angels, to behold the wonders of God as He puts on display His character through His mighty works of creation and redemption in all of human history. And then there are those people who have been born again by the Spirit of God. And these Christians are saved by God through Jesus Christ that they too will be made holy and will forever find love and find joy in the glorious character of God being put on display. For all eternity, we will rejoice in God's character. We will behold Him. We will remember all that He has done in the past. And as we see His character imitated in all of His children in the new heavens and the new earth, we will rejoice. But there is one way in which we who are Christians experience the character of God in a manner that the angels never have nor ever will. There is a particular aspect of God's character that the angels have never experienced for themselves. And that is the grace of God. We who are Christians know now and for all eternity what it is to be vessels of God's mercy. Now like the angels, we can sing about God's righteousness. We can sing about God's justice. We can sing about God's wisdom and God's power. But we particularly know the grace of God in a way that those who have not been redeemed cannot know it. This is why Paul, when he talks about the glory of God displayed in God's mighty acts of salvation, he says the theme of, sal of salvation is grace. And this theme comes up again and again. Grace, grace, Ephesians 1, in love. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. How did we come to be a part of God's people? Paul says it was through God's glorious grace for the purpose that we would praise God's grace forever. Friends, all of God's attributes should be precious to us. But God's grace is something particularly wonderful. And if we are Christians, we are experiencing grace every moment. 
We will experience it for all eternity. You realize that Jesus died for no other creature. God offered no grace to those angels who sinned against Him and fell. God Himself never became an angel, but He became man. And He took on human flesh. Jesus Christ is both God and man forever. And this was done for our salvation, for our eternal good. That we might see the glorious grace of God and be overwhelmed by it and rejoice in it forever and ever. You see, church, there is a higher purpose in your salvation than just your salvation. Did you know that? All things are from God. All things are through God. All things are to God. The supreme purpose in your salvation is that God will be glorified as He gives you the ability to understand more and more just how amazing He's already been towards you. Your eternal happiness erupting into eternal praise towards God is the purpose of your salvation. The glory of God is the highest purpose of your salvation and particularly the glorification of His grace. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul was already taught that even before God gave the Mosaic law to Israel at Mount Sinai, even before then... People were sinners. People didn't become sinners after the Ten Commandments were given. People were already sinners before the law was given. Guilt, the penalty of death for sin, began way before Mount Sinai. Sin and guilt and death were in the world from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned. When Adam broke the covenant that he had with God on behalf of all humanity... All humanity sinned and became guilty and spiritually dead. And every person who lived from the days of Adam to the days of Moses were sinners, just like you and me. They were sinners because they were spiritually dead under the curse for the sin of Adam. And these people, they only increased their guilt. They continued to act wickedly before God. But remember, God's goal is to show how amazing His grace is. So into this mass of sinful humanity, before God sent His Son Jesus, He sent something else. He sent the law. Now the law was already imprinted into the nature of human beings. It wasn't like people didn't know that murder was wrong until the Ten Commandments were given. It's not as if people heard the Ten Commandments and said, oh, stealing is wrong, I didn't know that. But this, this was already interwoven. I'm not sure if it's the short in the mic or if I'm hitting something. We'll give it another try. Take it higher. We'll see if this works better. 
Yeah, it's in the belt, on the belt. You take this off too. All right. <coughs> Track with me, okay? Mass of sinful humanity. God looks down on a world of sin, and before He sends Jesus, He sends the law. Now, people already knew that these things were wrong, right? People already knew that these things were bad and guilt already existed. But these truths were being suppressed by the wickedness of human hearts. Yes, it was woven into human fabric. Murder is wrong. But people were suppressing these truths in their hearts. They, they, they didn't want to accept these things. God sent the law of Moses so that the guilt of man before Him would increase. God sent the law of Moses so that the sinfulness of humanity would grow. Do you see that in the verse? The law came in to take away the trespass. Is that what it says? To increase the trespass. How? How did the giving of the law at Mount Sinai make man even worse off? Even guiltier before God? Paul's going to talk more about this in Romans 7. But the idea seems to be that the guilt of man was increased because now sins would be against the objectively revealed will of God. Now, people were no longer sinning against notions of right and wrong in their own hearts, but people were sinning against a standard written on stone by God Himself. The Israelites entered into covenant with God at Mount Sinai much like Adam did in the garden. And God's covenant with them was similar with Adam's in that God said if they trusted His Word and obeyed, they would be blessed. If they did not trust His Word and did not obey, there would be curses and death. So now every sin committed by every Israelite was committed in the face of the indisputable will of God written with His own finger on stone. And this was the God who had just brought them out of Egypt. So these were no longer sheer trespasses, simply doing things they shouldn't do. These were transgressions, acts of rebellion against the known law of God. In other words, God gave them the law knowing that they would still sin against it and thus their guilt before Him was made all the more heinous. Now wait a minute, Justin. God gave the law of Moses to Israel, not to everybody. That is, the law was given to the Jews. But most of the world at the time knew nothing of the Ten Commandments. The law of God written in stone. So how did, how did this increase the trespass for, for humanity? Well, God could have chosen any people in the world to give His law to. He could have come to the Hittites or the Amorites. But God chose one people, the Jews, a people that were no better off than anyone else. And their failure to keep the law and the great guilt that they brought upon themselves was representative of what would have happened to any other people in the world. In other words, God did not give the law to the Jews in order to show us Jewish depravity. God gave the law to the Jews so that we would have on display human depravity with the Jews as a test case. They were the example used by God on the theater of history 
to show us all how wicked by nature we are that when God stoops down to put it in black and white on stone, I love you, I've saved you from Egypt, this is what I want you to do, we still don't obey. It's not Jewish hearts. It's human hearts. And now the law of God did not stay with the Jews. You know the law of God. Gentiles. And as the gospel and Christianity is going to the world, the law of God is going with it. More people know the law of God today than at any point in human history. And boy, humanity sure seems to be acting a lot better, don't they? We've really shaped up, haven't we? The law of God goes around the world and we're really behaving so much better. Not at all. As the knowledge of the law of God has increased, so has wickedness. The effect of God giving the law was that man's sin before Him has worsened. And also that we now have on display the very depths of our own depravity. Now guys, I want you to think about this. Think about how how radical this teaching was for the Jews in Paul's day. They were looking to the law for salvation. They were looking to the law as a way of earning God's favor. As long as I do a decent job in keeping the law, I'll be okay. Paul was saying that they have totally misunderstood why God gave the law. People people did not become sinners because of the law. That happened long before the law was given. And people do not become saved by obedience to the law. Just the opposite. That happens through Jesus Christ and faith alone. Paul is saying God gave the law to make people's guilt worse. To which we might say, why in the world would God want to do that? Why would God want to make our sinfulness all the more great? So that where sin increased, grace could abound all the more. If the goal is to show how merciful He is, then the best way for God to show the depths of the glory of His own grace is for His mercy to cover a great deal of guilt. Reminds me of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Remember the challenge? The prophets of Baal would take a bull, cut it up, put it on the altar. Elijah would take a bull, cut it up, put it on his altar. Both sides would call on their God. Whichever one would hear from heaven and send down fire upon the sacrifice, that God would be seen to be the true God. And the prophets of Baal tried and tried to get their God to send down fire, calling out from morning until noon, O Baal, answer us. As they continued to cry out to Baal, Elijah made fun of them, saying maybe your God is daydreaming. Maybe your God is using the bathroom. Maybe your God is asleep. Maybe your God is on a journey. The prophets, more frustrated, cut themselves with swords and lances, causing blood to gush out of their own bodies, pleading with Baal to answer, and there was no answer. And then it was Elijah's turn. And yet before Elijah began to call out on God, what did he do? 
he had four jars of water poured out on his sacrifice. And then he had four more jars of water poured out on his sacrifice. And then he had four more jars of water poured out on his sacrifice. In the end, 12 jars of water poured on the sacrifice so that the water had built up even around the altar. Why did Elijah do that? Why would he make it even harder for the sacrifice to light? You know the answer, don't you? By making it harder, it would be all the more amazing when God sent down fire from heaven and the sacrifice was burned up. Elijah was raising the bar so that everyone around would see all the more just how great God's power is. And sure enough, we're told that God sent down fire from heaven and it burnt up not only the sacrifice, but it licked up every bit of water around the altar. Well, God giving the law is kind of like pouring the water on the sacrifice. God gave the law and increased man's guilt so that he could express all the more the wonders of his grace. Through Jesus, God is not saving people who have only slightly offended him. God is saving people who have greatly offended him. Through Jesus, God is not taking away a small amount of guilt. God is taking away a guilt higher than Mount Everest. Through Jesus, God is not forgiving us of little crimes. God is forgiving us of infinitely heinous crimes. God gave the law so that His grace in action would be all the more amazing. It's even clearer in verse 21. Look at verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God determined that sin would reign over the human race along with the death that accompanies sin. From Adam till today, sin and death rule over man. We are by nature slaves to sin. We are by nature spiritually dead. And in the end, we die physically and apart from the grace of God, we enter into the wrath of God for all eternity. This is the condition of mankind. Sin and death rule. And yet God determined that these things be so that His grace would be seen. His grace that brings the righteousness of Jesus to us, counts us righteous in His sight, is now recognized as something great and worthy of praise. Grace brings us the righteousness of Jesus that leads to eternal life through Him. I'm sure you've heard this analogy before. Why do many jewelers place their most beautiful diamonds against a dark backdrop? And the answer is that the beauty and the clarity and the purity of the diamond is best seen when contrasted against that dark backdrop in the same way God's amazing grace is best seen when it can be contrasted with a backdrop of sin and death? In fact, it's more than that. If there is no sin, can there be grace? Is there such a thing as grace? when there is no sin. Had God created the world in such a way that it was impossible for man to sin, we would have never known what God's grace was. 
Entire aspects of God's glorious character would have remained unexpressed, undisplayed, unworshipped. It is only because we know what sin and guilt is that we can see the wonders of the grace of God. Without sin, there would have never been grace. God gave the law to increase our guilt so that our salvation would be all the more sweet. His grace would be all the more amazing. One more thing I want you to see. The end of verse 21. It's the words, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. You cannot know the grace of God without knowing Jesus Christ. God's grace is expressed in Jesus Christ. At the very center of God's plan to glorify Himself is His plan to glorify His Son. God has connected every aspect of salvation to Jesus so that when we praise God for His grace, we must at the same time be praising Him for the gift of His Son, Jesus. Jesus accomplished the righteousness we need. It was Jesus who bore the cross that our sins could be forgiven. It is Jesus who raises people to spiritual life. It is Jesus who is sovereign over the proclamation of the Gospel, giving people faith to believe it. Paul's desire in these verses is one, that we be amazed by the grace of God and praise God for His grace. And two, that we praise Him for Jesus Christ in whom all this grace has been given. Now, we're about to enter a substantial change in the theme of Romans. Beginning with Romans 6, next week the focus moves from justification to sanctification. Justification, what happens that moment when we first believe and that one moment when we cry out into Jesus Christ, Jesus save me and we trust Him, in that one moment we are declared right with God, in that one moment we become His child, our sins are forgiven, there is no more condemnation of God towards us, heaven is ahead for us. Sanctification is that process by which God begins to make us what we've already been declared to be, namely righteous, holy, Gradually, over our lifetimes, God does this work of making us into the image of His Son. Our sanctification is inextricably linked to our justification. So as we go into Romans 6, first of all, you need to know we're going to start getting very practical in Romans 6. What does it mean to live as a person who's been declared right with God? What difference should all of this glory of just grace, 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 grace poured out all over us, living in the love of God, what difference should that make in our lives? That's what chapter 6 and 7 and 8 are about. That said, everything that Paul's about to teach us in chapter 6, 7, and 8 is completely built on everything he's been teaching in chapters 1 through 5. If you don't understand the glorious good news of Romans 1 through 5, you're going to misunderstand and misapply Romans 6, 7, and 8. And so, what I want to do to close this morning is simply sum up everything we've seen about the good news of salvation in Romans 1 through 5 
with five statements. And I'm going to do this very easily. I'm going to make the statement, and then I'm going to quote some verses we've seen that prove it. Make the second statement, quote some verses, and we'll be done. I want you to listen and see. Do you believe these things? Do you rejoice in these things? Number one, all mankind is guilty before God, desperately wicked, deserving of His righteous wrath. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 3.10-12, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Statement 2. God has freely provided the righteousness we so badly need in Jesus Christ. Romans 3.21-22, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore is one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Number three, God is just to forgive us our sins and to bless us because Jesus bore the punishment for His people on the cross. God is just to bless us because Jesus bore the punishment of His people on the cross. Romans 3, 23-26 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, who God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 5, 6-8 through 8, While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Number four, justification which is being made right with God through the righteousness of Jesus and having our sins forgiven, comes to those who believe on Jesus Christ. To shorten it up, justification comes to those who believe on Jesus Christ. Romans 1, 16-17, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Romans 4.3, what, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And finally, statement number five. Peace, hope, joy are some of the blessings that come to those who trust Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 1 through 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Romans 5, 11, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Dear friends, do you believe these things? Man is sinful. Christ did everything necessary for us to be saved. It is by faith that we are saved. Hope, joy, peace come to us when we believe. And God is just to do all of these things because of what Christ did at the cross. Do you believe these things? This is the essence of Christianity. Justin, when are you going to talk about deeper things? It doesn't get deeper than this. This is swimming in the depths. We'll spend all eternity trying to understand these things. But do you believe them? Do you rest in them? And more important than whether or not you're resting in the truths themselves is this. Are you resting in Jesus Christ Himself? Are these truths pointing you to a Savior? If you are, if you are trusting Christ, you will show it with your life. You'll be a person of prayer. You'll be a person of the Word. You'll be involved in your church family. You'll be seeking to serve Christ with your life. You'll love Christ. You'll look to Him for help in each and every situation. My prayer is that Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church would be a church where faith abounds in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we are great sinners. But as deep as our sin goes, God's grace is deeper still. Let us rejoice in the grace of God given through Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray.